into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms. Three CR Radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And yes, another action-packed show this week with Alana Hartsock. You've heard it before on the show, and we are diving into full-spectrum dominance. This is a serious conversation. Alana was the Democratic candidate for Pennsylvania District 9 just recently. She's the international liaison for the Robert Shelkenbach Foundation, our UN representative, always offer conferences there, and uh, the General Secretary of the International Union for Land Value Tax. It's been a huge week uh, for us this week. Lots of stuff going on in the news, but uh, let's get into it. I didn't have a clue this happened in the last few weeks. Just sit back and uh, decipher what's going on in Latin America, particularly Venezuela. Well, Obama administration recently declared Venezuela a threat to our U.S. national security. Uh, and then there was yet another attempt at a coup for the duly elected President Maduro, but that was prevented, barely, but they prevented it. There was uh, a mayor of a section of Venezuela leading the coup. I think they might have put him in jail. But it's just that it's... And then all of uh, UNISUR, which is like the United States of South America... All of those leaders came together in a crisis emergency situation after the U.S. declared Venezuela a threat to national security because they all see it as a threat to democracy in uh, South America that that we would issue such a statement. And knowing the history of U.S. meddling with the entire continent, has them concerned because a lot of those countries have been breaking away from U.S. domination during the past few years. I totally missed that story down here in Australia. How long ago did that happen and what level of organization was behind this attempted coup in Venezuela? I would say by now it's uh, about a month ago, if that. And what level? Uh, I mean, you have the elites and you have actually U.S. government-backed NGOs that are in Venezuela and other countries that that can work to destabilize those governments if they consider them not the right form of economics, <laughs> uh, neoliberal or capitalist economics, then they demonize them. And that's been happening over and over with uh, Venezuela. So what you have is you have internal elites and in those factions and then covert uh, uh, meddling from uh, United States uh, deep state and sometimes quite on the surface actors. And then they now and then try to assassinate. Uh, they did Hugo Chavez and they uh, tried to assassinate again Maduro. That's what happened. So uh, the people are on high alert almost all the time and they have pretty good. Uh, espionage services that monitor these attempts. So they managed to preserve their government once again. 
but they're having to start arresting some people now for stirring up these kind of coup attempts. But all of Latin America is onto it. I mean, they're all awakened. And uh, we're in a different world than the unipolar world where the U.S. could do pretty much what it wanted, where it wanted to. Ecuador has uh, broken free. Bolivia has broken free. Brazil, Argentina, I think, are pretty well awake or we, we wouldn't have BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa in an alignment, even forming their own monetary and banking system to get out of control of U.S. petrodollar. So there's just a, a big deal change happening. You look at some places that I do following uh, Paul Craig Roberts, who was Assistant Secretary of Treasury under Reagan, been around a long, long time. He's 76. He's seen a lot. A writer for Wall Street and Business Week. Very mainstream guy who now has such a critique of U.S. foreign policy that he can't get printed in any mainstream media. Uh, but did just won an International Journalism Award in Mexico. A very big deal award that he went down to a couple of weeks ago. So Paul Craig Roberts, and he has paulcraigroberts.com, is a very insightful analyst of uh, U.S. foreign policy. I, I have read some of his stuff, and it's almost scary reading it. I wonder whether it's almost a conspiracy, but you're saying this is very well respected around the world, and he's, he's well-referenced. Well-referenced, very clear, very bright, very brilliant, lays it on the line. Uh, and, and you guys are junior partners in, in the crime, you know, Australia. We certainly are. Yeah, so, and UK, sometimes you don't know who's dog wagging what tail or tail wagging the dog, but I mean, you have the uh, 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 City of London, head of uh, banking uh, cartels, and I guess, uh, you know, Wall Street, who's the top one there, who don't know, but they work together. And you have all the theft of U.S. tax dollars by giving the big banks money and the bailout and not going to the people. So um, there's a very powerful elite. He's very aware of it. And the thing, it's supported by these neoconservatives, neocons, that were with Bush and Clinton, continuing on with Obama, like, for instance, Victoria Nuland, the chief of the Department of State for, for Europe and an assistant secretary of our State Department, uh, who's been over there stirring up trouble in Ukraine and elsewhere, and the neocon agenda is to keep the U.S. as top dog. So they don't want any other government that is autonomous, that does not do what the U.S. wants it to do, that does not have puppets. And their plan before uh, the uh, Iraq war and before what happened on 9-11, and that's why many people look at 9-11 as pivotal to the neocons' plan of uh, full-spectrum dominance, U.S. foreign policy, and the control. They had a domino list of countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Yemen, um, Lebanon, Iran. I mean, most all of them have been become basket cases as states. They, they um, don't work anymore. The people have been so divided against themselves. 
and they stirred up any division they can find, like the Shia, Shiite, Sunni Shia conflict is one they like to stir up. So there's a lot of warmongers in the, the, the Obama administration, right? And we saw that where the group of 47 senators actually wrote to Iran uh, sabotaging uh, uh, Obama's attempts to have this new framework for peace with Iran. Uh, I think that may be tipping the scales because that framework is moving along. It's being greatly heralded as a very positive step forward from both the right and the left. So it's, it's, it's a bit of good news, recent good news, just the past few days. And the other cracks that Paul Craig Roberts is seeing, and as you say, he usually puts out some pretty scary scenarios, but the, uh, a glimmer of hope that he sees is that there's a new uh, development bank that China has put together, and it looks like some European countries, against the wishes of the United States, are going to join up with this new China bank. So it's that alliance of uh, Russia and China that's now the counterweight to U.S. as a unipolar superpower. It's sad, Carl. You know, it's like we were a good country with high ideals, except we did have this problem of, uh, of, of wealth inequality that's been growing. Uh, but I think it's that faction that some call the deep state or the secret government that has too often gotten the upper hand over the constituted democracy in the past few years. That's what we're up against here. Um, it's sort of touch and go where the power really is for the United States right now. I mean, they are so crazy as to having scenarios about a first strike nuclear attacks, even that that would be considered by these neocons is really scary. So this battle over ideas, the, the battle for intellectual control of the public debate is primarily where we are, but underpinning that is the battle for resources. And you've very tactfully identified this, this full-spectrum dominance as one of the key issues we have to look out for this project of the new American century. Can you go into a bit more detail about full-spectrum dominance and some of the forces that are playing out uh, today? It's probably still described, if anybody wants to do a web search, it's still up there. But it's been a bit downplayed because people were getting rather shocked by the information. Uh, what it is, is in, in one sentence, it's that the U.S. would maintain military dominance on sea, land, air, and outer space. So that we would be able to fight preemptive wars anywhere we thought they needed to be fought if there was any uh, threat. So U.S. national security got defined as... United States imperial dominance, see what I mean? And then that is actually the underlying uh, ideology to having all sorts of reasons to have hot wars, the wars that will be backed by the propaganda machine, which is our U.S. media, which is dominated by just five or six corporations, which speak as one voice, say, when it comes to let's all now demonize Vladimir Putin 
And so you see him appearing on the covers of our major magazines as some kind of literal demon, devil figure. And now so many uh, people in the United States have come to believe that Putin is a really bad, horrible, evil dictator, just like Hugo Chavez was in Venezuela. So they, they really do a thing with the minds of people who aren't digging a little deeper into the truth. The average person comes home from work, watches Fox News. So suddenly Russia is, 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 is attacking Ukraine, invading Ukraine. And uh, they never show the pictures of how NATO has crept to the borders of Russia, which is against the gentleman's agreement that uh, Reagan made years ago uh, with, uh, with Gorbachev and uh, the fact that when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, we would not take advantage of their vulnerability and expand NATO in their direction, but we have. And the attempt to even get to the Russian longtime naval base in the Crimea, that was the prize for the Ukraine. They haven't won that prize, even though they destabilized Ukraine, created a civil war. Uh, but the um, Russians came in because that is traditionally Russian zone, that Crimea region. They came in and they had a quick election. And the people agreed to go under Russia. They agreed by vote to become part of Russia. Russia didn't invade and take over Crimea. The people decided that's what they wanted. They didn't want to align with the new puppet government that the West installed with U.S. Uh, really, it was the U.S. part of NATO that got that destabilization of Ukrainian government. So anyhow, there's a lot to say about how this nefarious force has been operating. Your article, The Economics of War and Peace, really spells out the systemic analysis that motivates such global dominance from the American imperialist elite. Can you explain how your privilege fund enables the war system? Well, those, those are a series of four graphs that in my article, Economics of War and Peace, I did a... A narrative on each one. Okay, so the first one shows a peaceful economy and it shows human beings having fair and equal rights to land and resources uh, to produce their base, basic needs and that that is the basis of a, a peaceful and just society. Uh, the second one shows that uh, it actually uh, is an image of people and then of an arrow pointing downward into what we call the privilege fund, privilege meaning private law, and at that arrow point is a gun, because here's a point of violence, is when a few are able to charge money for others to have access to the land and resources, because some few land speculators, colonizers, call them what you will, but some few have gotten the power to control land and resources, and then for anybody else to get uh, access, they then have to pay. You have to pay rent, usual rent for renting land, or or you have to pay mortgage uh, to get hold of any land if you want to, say, have a garden. So you have to have a job, you have to be in the system. So those few who are in a position to charge the economic rent, which is the price for land and resource access, 
uh, that privilege fund grows over time because the next point of violence in the third chart shows the guns uh, over the um, indicator for uh, interest. If you can't from your wages, which few people can, buy land for your house, for instance, you're going to have to borrow, going to have to borrow from a bank, and you're going to have to pay interest. And now the privilege fund grows by the combination of the rent for direct access to land, or if you can't come up with the rent, you've got to pay interest. So the privilege fund grows enormously. And the actual, you've probably covered it many times in your program, the law of rent shows that this privilege fund grows, this elite rule fund grows faster than the return to wages. So there is the power dynamic where the few who control the land resources and banking have the power and the dominance over those who are simply the middle class and the poor people only have their labor. Uh, and they work their whole life long, you know, paying the rent to the landlord or paying the mortgage for the house. That's the situation that we're in. And that's what's uh, driving the extreme wealth inequality we see mostly in, in, in most all countries that are in the capitalist system around the world. And that is what the other countries and peoples are trying to break free from. And that is what people in the United States, and I would say Australia and UK too, are not clear enough about a way forward to break free from the system of exploitation that's actually damaging, harming, and collapsing their own democracies and the rights that were won. For instance, we don't even have Magna Carta rights of habeas corpus in the United States has been 800 years that was erased for when the Patriot Act came in. And other of our basic civil liberties, civil liberties, we don't have anymore uh, because before even 9-11 happened, the Patriot Act was already written. Most people don't know that. But within a few days after 9-11, this thousand-page document, the Patriot Act, went out to all the um, uh, Congressmen's, uh, Senate's, uh, Senate and House Representatives leaders' desks. Now, uh, that was prepared ahead of time, part of a grand plan. But to go back to these charts, I'm talking about the privilege fund. There's a fourth, the final one, which is the good news one, is that that wealth that accumulates through rent and interest into the privilege fund and then grows into a war system. I forgot that part. Privilege fund funders, those who control that, they're like psychopathic, never-ending desire for more wealth and more power and so when you're on the top of the heap and when your country has become a superpower you just can't say stop that's enough you got to go out and have this plan for full spectrum dominance of the whole world which means you got to control the people the land and the resources of the entire planet to keep growing uh, uh, your power and control system uh, if you go deep into that rabbit hole, it starts looking like a very sick yet powerful matrix, uh, just like the movie, which we're really up against, uh, or it's the, the, the octopus with, with his arms into just about every everything you can imagine, the media system, and, and then the control of the military, military-industrial complex that our president, Dwight David Eisenhower, warned us about decades ago now has come to be. So you have a full-blown militarization system that 
as empire doesn't care anymore, just voices the concern for democracy. That's a veneer that we're bringing democracy into the, these other countries. So thank you very much. Bomb my village and kill lots of civilians at their wedding parties because thank you very much. You're bringing democracy to our country. I sure hope people in mass keep waking up to that lie. Pure propaganda, neocon propaganda, full-spectrum dominance propaganda. People got to wake up to that, face it full force, and then see what are we going to do? How do we back engineer in a way the economy so that we get back to that peaceful flow of goods and services with people with access to land and resources? Now, in a simple society, direct land rights we can talk about, but we're in very complex, and I think we want to be have a, a complex economy with advanced production and distribution of all the wealth capacity that we have gained. I mean, we pretty well solved the production problem, food, shelter, clothing, education, and healthcare. We have not solved the distribution problem, and therein is, is, is the big threat to democracies. Yep. So for yep. economic democracy, we got to take that privilege fund and see that those monies collected from, from rent and uh, interest that is what needs to be socialized, if you will, belongs to society as a whole. It's an unearned income when privatized. And then we can truly privatize what we need to privatize, which is people's wages. Don't tax work, collect rent from land and resources. You see that already a bit in the movements that want to do carbon, uh, not carbon trading, but tax the carbon emissions and then share the, as dividends, those funds from charging for carbon emissions. That's the way to go. There's uh, some populist movements around that. It's been done some places. Germany, to some degree, has, has uh, green, green power, green energy, about as much as any place else because of, of taxing carbon. We're talking to Alana Hartsock, General Secretary of the International Union of Land Value Taxation. She's also our UN representative. And Alana, uh, it's horrifying to think that America has over 700 bases on foreign right. soils, uh, but can't see why certain nations in the Middle East are upset about this imposition on their rights. Uh, right. We've got drones going on left, right and centre. But uh, the good news is during this um, brief window of uh, information exchange facilitated via the internet that good things are happening in some fields and you've just recently attended the uh, United States Basic Income Conference. Give us a praise of that concept and why you see it as so essential. Okay, but i got to add one more thing onto my tagline because after I ran for Congress last year, the oh, yeah. Shockabock Foundation has reinstated my contract. So I'm also international liaison for the Robert Schockenbach Foundation. Yippee, go to their website and order Henry George books from there and many others. Okay, so uh, U.S. basic income uh, spun off of the European basic income network, you, you, BN, basic income European network, a few years back under the leadership of uh, Dr. Carl Wiederquist. And it has uh, tagged along with the Eastern Economics Association for, oh my, maybe nine, ten years now. And early on, Jeffrey Smith was in there giving talks, brought others of us in about the importance of 
land rent, the surplus value under income accruing to land and resources as a social surplus, that is what should be the basis for basic income or citizen dividends, uh, kind of like they do in Alaska, where each citizen gets um, about uh, anywhere from $1,200, $1,800 a year from their oil rent. So this is to expand that, and there is enough, surely, in this unearned income, if distributed, that we could get basic needs uh, uh, dividend all. I mean, enough dividend money to provide for minimum basic needs for all. And so basic income movement says we don't need the bureaucracies around, uh, around the social welfare programs. Uh, because there's a bit of a dead weight loss, I guess you'd say, burden from that because of bureaucratic mechanism. But we just simply collect funds and then distribute it sufficient for everybody to get a basic income. So that's the idea, a basic income where you can can have your basic needs met and you don't have to rely on a job, somebody to employ you, you can live simply. Our argument, as George's to them, had been over the years, Fine, the landlord will just raise the rent, the price of land will go up when people have a little extra spent, a little extra money in their pocket. So it's essential to do the, the see it as a holistic process and, and then tap into the increase in land and resource values always to then pay for uh, basic income. So some would say let's do populist vote. Some localities might want more social services and government-funded programs and others might more libertarian leaning people might want more the the basic incomes given to them i say uh let the people decide let there be a whole mix of different ways the main thing is as a georgia's is to collect the land and resource rent uh, for the people this seems to be a growing movement in America, and I see that out of Silicon Valley, there's uh, more and more of uh, those libertarian types uh, thinking about a, a basic income for all. Uh, how are you seeing it uh, amongst the right wing in a way? Are they taking this on board in any way or form? Well, we have a guy, uh, Harold Cariazzi in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He wrote a little book called Libertarians at Sea on Land. So we have a group, uh, a little group within the Libertarian Party called the Geo-Libertarians, and they are doing the education and advocacy for, for looking at the rent problem, rent for the people, as in like fairly sharing land and resources, versus the royal libertarians who just aren't thinking about the land problem at all. They just sort of privatize everything, we'll have heaven on earth. Uh, so there is a confluence. You had heard at one point during the Iraq war, you actually heard the right talking about distributing oil rent dividends uh, in Iraq, which was like a ray of sunshine there for a minute. And uh, then you didn't hear much about that anymore. But I would say that this is uh, one of these fusion type of policies that really can transcend the right and the left. Now, how many people in numbers are actually pushing for this? A relatively small number, I would say, but then there's a relatively small number of people who think about much anything at all anymore in the United States. Uh, I recently uh, saw a great, great, funny, serious 
interview that John Oliver did went over to Moscow and interviewed Edward Snowden. Before then, he interviewed people in Times Square, most of whom had never heard of Edward Snowden, or if they did, they got the story wrong. A uh, real low level of uh, political awareness in the United States, even in uh, presidential elections, only about half the people come out to vote. So that's really what we're up against. We're, against, we're up against apathy. And that apathy and lack of uh, curiosity and understanding and interest in politics, Carl, that's what drives really bad things like, like uh, fascism. And we're certainly seeing some pretty ugly things in the United States right now. Alana Hartsock, uh, how can we end on a positive note on some way or other? That's going to be tough because I'm just, I'm just looking at Well, the positive note is we may have averted war with Iran, despite the neocons and the warmongers who say that uh, war was the, only, was the only solution to Iran and regime change in Iran. So uh, I think my sense is that there's some level of awakening in some members of the U.S. government that sees that we continue on in a warlike imperialism. We, meaning all of the junior partners, you guys in Australia and everybody, but that the alignment that's coming up with the BRICS, with Russia and China, these are powers now to be reckoned with. And they are becoming more aligned with each other in a stronger force. So it's only going to be the crazies who can keep talking about um, the possibility of uh, nuclear war or full-spectrum dominance. So I think just the way the power system is shifting on Earth, that uh, we, we may be seeing the denouement of this imperialist system, and we may be seeing a real opportunity to get international systems like the UN, the International Criminal Court, and the World Court, these things set up to prevent war, the scourge of war, we could actually see the possibility that they would begin to work, and that people can really get down to the business of addressing economic human needs and that's where our new economics paradigm comes in, uh, that the land and resources should be shared and that what we make through our labor is our private property and the government shouldn't tax labor-created wealth but should collect for all of us the, the enormous amount that is created by society, which is the rent of land, natural resources, electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, there's many... Uh, the, the deep resources in the oceans as a way to solve conflict around the ocean. The ocean's dying, so we need resource agency to protect and restore the commons of the ocean and to begin the great, great shift to the renewable energies that are all online and ready to go and to overcome the, the, the carbon polluting powers uh, is another great task ahead of us. And I might also add, lastly, the agribusiness like Monsanto, agribusiness corporations that are equally poisoning our planet uh, is another uh, set of dinosaurs we're going to have to be dealing with. Lots of work to do there, Carl. Thank you for your doing your piece, chugging along there in Australia and making ripples around the world. Thank you.
Well, that's why we call ourselves renegade economists. We should be able to do that uh, in just a matter of moments, solve all those problems. <laughs> it's a crazy, yeah. it's a crazy well, old world. Correct thought. But Henry George always said, you know, with correct thought, right action will follow. So, but you're, you're, you know, you're doing something real important. I want to give you some kudos. Yeah, congratulations. You know, and looking very closely at the situation with housing there and that you have all these housing vacancies, housing being held off the market, uh, and looking very closely and crunching the great job you did, crunching the numbers of who owns what, what where and how much rent there, there really is that could be captured for the, the benefit of us all. Uh, I mean, you've gone way beyond theory, Carl, and your team. You've really gotten into specifics. And I really admire what you're doing, and I thank you. Together, uh, our um, little outfit is raising the awareness of land value taxation and the dangers of monopoly through privatisation. So uh, it, it's a long journey, but we are custodians of a very important form of analysis that goes to the heart of so many problems that hit us today. It's more than just banking reform. It's more than just land reform. It's a way of harmonizing our behavior with the earth that we really need to look at. So, uh, yeah, I'm lucky each week to have fantastic conversations with thought leaders around the world on this topic. And I thank you for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. You're welcome. And one last bit of good news. It's wild and crazy, but we hear that Saudi Arabia is going to be doing land tax in its cities. Isn't that a good one? Go on, give us an overview of that. That sounds amazing. All vacant land is going to face some sort of land tax. Yeah, this is land that's being held speculatively by just a few elites or, you know, I mean, uh, they actually say this is not to the benefit of development of our cities to have this unused uh, prime urban land. And so we're going to bring in a land tax. Now, I don't know how they got the idea but I will tell you that a few years ago, I had two very wonderful conversations with the Saudi Arabian executive director of the World Bank. The bank has 24 executive directors, and serendipitously, I met one and the United Nations, and then I, we had a two-hour talk with him, myself and some other NGOs who then showed up for the meeting. And then uh, a few months later, I actually met with him and two of his top advisors at his upscale luxury office at the World Bank. And these were wonderful men. And I say that because I wouldn't think that Saudi Arabian men would actually listen to a woman. And they, I did most of the talking and they were very courteous and we got to be really good buds after that hour talking about a whole range of things. But maybe, you know, everything we put into the whole gestalts of the consciousness field helps things along. But somehow or other, who knows for sure, Saudi Arabia is doing land tax. <laughs> yeah, there, there seems to be good news stories every every single day. I mean, The Economist has come out uh, twice in a week talking about the importance of land value tax. That's a huge win. Here in our main uh, left-leaning newspaper, Fairfax Media, Jessica Irvine's talking about the importance of land value tax. We've had two, mm-hmm. pa- had two papers from the Federal Treasury saying, look, it has actually a positive excess burden, um, mm-hmm. land tax, so it is by far the best form of tax we can uh, utilise. So there is 
plenty of good news out there. What we really need to do is figure out the campaigning strategies so that we can awaken um, those facing both rental and mortgage stress into understanding that there is a third way between capitalism, or what I call monopoly capitalism, and yeah. socialism is this way of sharing the rents and keeping our wages to ourselves. So uh, right. that's our ultimate aim. And uh, yeah, it's just we're just so lucky to have the internet. And um, I yeah. really take my uh, hat off to those folks at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others who are fighting for net neutrality in America at the exactly. moment. The big media companies are closing in on it. And there we have Alana Hartsock from earthrights.net. That's earthrights.net and author of The Earth Belongs to Everyone, a real powerhouse when it comes to uh, keeping alive this story of custodianship over the earth amongst all people. It's not just there for easy profiteering. So uh, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au. I'll have all the show notes up there. And, yeah, that finishes four weeks of the heavy hitters. If I can't convince you to uh, join and support us, uh, I never will. So uh, head to prosper.org.au and become a member, 30 bucks, and get our 112-year-old magazine sent to you, amongst many other things. So thanks very much. We'll see you next week here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves. Like some food for thought?